Hello and welcome to Fantastic History. I'm Clay. I'm Sarah. We are a husband and wife duo who enjoy telling each other about amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history. Woo! Now, Sarah, I, I, I love a good underdog story. Okay. Do you? Depends who the underdog is. <laughs> well, I think I think everyone does because underdog stories are really popular. Oh yeah. Like you got you got Rocky Balboa. Uh, Luke Skywalker, yeah. Steve Rogers. Oh, don't even start with me. I can't. I'll start to cry. The the Karate Kid, Airbud. <laughs> this man said Airbud. Airbud. <laughs> okay. Tommy Wiseau. Oh, Tommy. We love seeing someone fight against all the odds and make it out on top. It's very feel good, right? I don't like where this is going. So the two stories I want to share with you are about all about people fighting against the worst circumstances imaginable and seemingly insurmountable. Two people who found themselves where their loved ones were told they could not have survived. Oh, dear. But they did. Okay. Good setup. Are you going to tell me they finally found Glenn Miller and he's alive? I'm not. Oh, man. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, I probably would have heard by now, I guess. Let's 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 start off on a downer. Yeah, okay. Sorry. But let me tell you the stories that I had planned. Oh, okay, sure. Okay. Okay, so this this first one takes place in May of 2013. Oh. So the three Nigerian tugboats were towing an oil tanker in the rough seas when a rogue wave smashed into one of the tugboats, the Jackson 4, and capsized it. It occurred at 4.30 a.m., and the crew of 12 were mostly locked in their cabins asleep. Mm. And it was locked as a protection against pirates. Right. But deadly in a case of a quick sinking. Oh. So the boat went down quickly, and because the boat had flipped over and was upside down as it went down, everyone inside the rooms were too disoriented or hurt to be able to get out before it was too late. Oh, my God. Except one man, Harrison O'Kinney. He was in the bathroom at the time of the sinking, and he was the ship's cook. When the boat capsized, he recalls, I was dazed and everywhere was dark as I was thrown from one end of the small cubicle to another. And he eventually made his way out of the bathroom. Remember, this, it's, everything's upside down now. Mm-hmm. Uh, he made his way out of the bathroom, but the hall was completely dark. Like, no light mm. at all. Yeah. And the cold water was rising. Oh, God. Mm-mm. So trying to find a way out, he went down the hall, um, but he was unable to you know, properly navigate the blind and chaotic scene. And he found himself at a dead end um, in an engineer's office at the end of the hallway. Mm. Now, the water had risen so much that it was not possible to go back the way he came. So he was basically trapped there. And he used whatever material he could find just to get as high as he could trying to, you know, prolong how long he had. I've seen Titanic, yeah. Yeah, you, you know. But eventually the water stopped rising, and Okini found himself in an air pocket. Oh! It was cold, he had no light, he had no water or food, and he was only in his boxers. Oh, man. But he was alive. Meanwhile, the boat had come to rest on the sea floor. <sighs> 100 feet down. Oh, no. Now, there were many ways that Okini would have died. 
His little air pocket was only four feet high, so under normal circumstances, he would have run out of breathable air in less than 24 hours. But O'Kinney's air pocket was under pressure because it was so far down Mm -hmm. in the water. And the compressed pocket would actually sustain him longer than if it was just an an air pocket at normal depths. Weird. Yeah, I don't exactly... I I don't understand how that works. Yeah. (laughs) uh, So I won't even try to explain it because I don't. Um, And his thrashing around the water helped the CO2 in the air be absorbed into the water. Oh, that's interesting. Which prevented CO2 poisoning. Dang. So his breathing was covered for the time being, but it was also cold. Right. Hypothermia can set in pretty quickly when you're submerged in cold water. Yeah. But again, O'Kinney was lucky. He found a mattress in the office and used it as a platform to keep his upper body out of the water. Okay. So... Most of his body was out of the water. He was wet, but it could have been a lot worse. Right. He had also found something to sustain him. A single can of Coke, which he (laughs) proportioned very carefully. Okay. But there was another problem that started early on and only got worse. The sounds of creatures (gasps) surrounding and entering the boat. Oh, God. Looking for food. Oh, boy. And I'm not talking about Cheetos. He recalls hearing loud thumps mm. as what he believed were sharks bumping around in the ship's interior or trying to find a way inside. Oh, my God. So there he was waiting there in the cold, dark waters, not not knowing exactly where he was, you know, how, how deep he was. Or if anyone would even bother coming to find him and rescue him because... I would think not. Who who, who would expect to, someone to survive? Right. Well, three days later... Oh, my. Divers arrived at the site to begin searching for the bodies. Four bodies were pulled up, and one of the divers had found a fifth, but he recalls when he reached for the hand... The hand grabbed him. I would shit myself immediately. Yes. Oh, my God. So apparently, oh, uh-uh. apparently, had seen a flash of light on that third day, and he was, you know, like this is my possibly my only chance. Uh huh. And they may not even come this way if they're down here. Oh god! So he swam. He went under the water and went for it. Uh, and thankfully, he found the diver. Yeah. But you can imagine. Um, that he was, he was probably like, this is, this is probably where I'm going to die. Yeah. Oh yeah. Until that, that, that final moment. Um, so, and every, obviously everybody was terrified because the diver was terrified. I'm sure O'Kinney <laughs> was terrified that he wasn't, that this could be like a hallucination or something. Or maybe it's like an angler fish. Don't they have, <laughs> I'm serious. Like they yeah. have those lights, right? Like, oh boy. In the moment that this diver finds O'Kinney was captured on camera. <gasps> Oh my captured on God. film. So you can find the video online. Oh my. Where he where he emerges in that air pocket and finds him and you see his face. Oh my God. And it's it's like witnessing a miracle. Wow. Yeah. So Kenny would obviously be rescued, but he wasn't brought up to the surface immediately um, because he had been at such an extreme depth for so long. Oh yeah. He had to enter a decompression chamber. To bring his body to the correct pressure slowly. Right. But he had survived a sunken ship 100 feet down on the seafloor in his boxers 
with nothing more than a can of Coke surrounded by sharks and the dead for 72 hours. Oh, my, my. Isn't that incredible? That is the worst thing. This poor man. I know. Okay. The next story, I'm going to take you from the depths of the ocean to the Sahara Desert. Oh, okay. Each year, one of the most difficult foot races on Earth takes place in the Sahara Desert. That is kooky. It's called the Marathon of the Sands. It's a six-day ultra marathon covering 156 miles in Morocco, where participants have to carry all of their food and equipment with them. No. And their water consumption is rationed. So not only... Whoa, 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 whoa. Sorry? Their water consumption is rationed. Why? I don't know exactly. Okay. That's just that's just the rule. All right. So not only is the race the equivalent of running a one marathon every day in one of the world's most inhospitable environments, uh-huh. but you're carrying a full backpack, and if you drink more than two liters of water per day, you're penalized. What the hell? So this race is very extreme and dangerous. Uh-huh. And it's so extreme and dangerous that participants have to assign a waiver uh, include that that states where their body should be sent in the event they die. Oh dear. Yeah, it's Mm-mm. it's it's a big thing. Mm-mm. No, no, thank you. In 1994, Italian police officer Mauro Prosperi decided to do it. He was 39 at the time and was a former Olympic pentathlon gold medalist. Okay. And he was also married with three children. Mm, okay. So. He trained by running 25 miles a day. She was. Okay. And reducing his water intake to, you know, acclimate his body for the dehydration he would face in the race. That's awful. It's crazy. That is truly awful. So at the time, the race only attracted about 134 competitors. I'm surprised it was that many. Oh, it's it's much bigger now. Oh. Much bigger. Okay. So the first, day, so so he 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 go, he he's participating in the race, right? The first three days of the ultra marathon went according to plan. He was meeting his checkpoints. Um, the tent that he that they stay in is like set up ahead of them. They don't have to carry a tent. Oh, okay. It's sort of, it's sort of like once you reach the reach the tent, that's your checkpoint for the night. Okay. So he was he was finding his tent each night, staying on t- uh, near the top of the other racers. Then on the fourth day, well, the fourth day was the longest stage, the most intense, because the other ones were, you were running about 25 miles a day. Mm -hmm. But this one, you had to cross 57 (gasps) miles. Why? That day in the 115 degree Fahrenheit desert. No, ma'am. This was was the intense day. But shortly after noon, an unexpected sandstorm blew in. Oh, no. So most competitors stopped and waited the storm out. But Prosperi did not. He this man was a he was a machine and he kept moving because he didn't want to lose this place. Mm-hmm. Maybe he thought if if this is slowing others down, maybe I can push forward even harder. You can't see, sir. You cannot see right now. <laughs> well, when it finally became began to get dark and the storm died down. Well, Prosperi realized he wasn't on the trail anymore. You don't say. Yeah. Could he not see it in the sandstorm? Apparently not. Hmm. Okay. So 
he uh he decided he decided to just backtrack just go the way he came just turn around and go back he would find the trail uh-huh there's not a lot to see in the desert except large obvious markers right yeah so he did that and he actually had to make camp because it was already dark so he he made camp he slept in, in the open uh but when the morning sun came uh, he was still having trouble finding the trail, so he climbed a high dune to get a better vantage point, and what he found was nothing in every direction. No trail, no tents, no people, nothing. Mm-hmm. He was completely lost. Mm-hmm. And despite having a map and compass, he didn't have any points of reference. It's the middle oh, of the desert. Oh, God, Yeah. What are you gonna What are you gonna find? Yeah, this dune looks a lot like this one. <laughs> the race guideline stated that if you get lost, just stay stay where you are and wait for rescue, the, because the the organizers would have surely they, they would know if you were lost because you wouldn't have gone to your checkpoint. Right. So he was like, "Okay, I'm just gonna stay here and wait." So he waited all day, and by the afternoon. He saw a rescue helicopter that was flying near him, and he tried to get their attention with the one flare he was given. Oh, God. But they didn't see it. Oh. Mm. Because the flare was not strong enough. After this, nowadays, at this event, they give, give like, nautical um, super flares. Right, yeah. Like, super, like, the kind you, you would be able to see. In the super bright desert. Right. That's not exactly what they had at this time. So they didn't uh-huh. see it. That was his only flare. Mm-hmm. And the helicopter left. Of course. Yeah. So he stayed there until the sun set again and spent another night in the dunes with almost no water left. <gasps> oh, God. And just a little bit of food. Oh, dearie me. <laughs> dearie me indeed. Oh. The next morning was day two of the ordeal. He decided that he couldn't stay there another day. He was he was exposed to the elements. He wasn't making any progress. So he had to try to find help on his own. So he chose a direction and began walking. Well, the direction that he chose ended up being a pretty good choice because he came across a structure. Upon closer inspection, he realized it was a Muslim marabout shrine. And it must he must have been elated to find this this shrine. Mm-hmm. But it was abandoned. <laughs> okay. It was more of a uh, um, mausoleum. Okay. It's it's a place where people will come and pray, mm-hmm. but it's not like where people stay. Right. Okay. But it was shade and it was protection from the elements. Right. It was something. Yeah. So Prosperi spent the following two days at the shrine, rationing his remaining food, drinking his own urine, mm. licking the morning dew off of rocks. Oh, God. And squeezing the moisture out of his wet wipes. Oh! When he climbed the top, the, to the top of the shrine, he, he he was thinking, "I'll put I'll put my Italian flag on the top of the shrine, because either they'll somebody searching will see it and realize he was he's here or was here, or if if the worst comes to worst, they'll know where he his body is found." Right. So he went up to you know attach the flag. Um, and he, he discovered that there were bats living in the top of the shrine, Hooray! which was very good for him because this was food. Oh, come on. Hey, 
So he ate them raw mm. and he drank their blood. <laughs> ironically. Turnabout is fair play, I suppose. And apparently he, he chose specifically to not cook them because cooking them would dry it out. Right. Okay. He didn't want to lose any moisture. Jeez. And thankfully he had brought anti-diarrhea medicine so that he could stomach this intense diet. Mm-hmm. Well, on the second day of the shrine, he heard the sound of hope, an airplane flying nearby, likely a rescue airplane. So he began quickly writing SOS in the sand and in an act of extreme desperation, he lit his backpack and whatever he had on fire. Oh God, don't do that. Because this was like the last chance. Uh-huh. To create a, he was creating a smoke signal. Mm-hmm. But right as he did this, a sandstorm blew in. Yeah. Another one. Mm-hmm. And covered the landscape for 12 hours. Yeah. And the plane disappeared from sight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And never saw him, obviously. Mm, yeah. And it was at this point that Prosperi gave in to despair. You would. Yeah. He felt this was the last chance. And all that awaited him was a slow and agonizing death. Yeah. And I want to just warn anyone listening and you sarah that the next part may not be suitable for younger listeners or listeners who don't want to hear something a bit macabre so feel free to fast forward a couple of minutes if you aren't wanting to hear that prosperi decided he didn't want to wait for that long agonizing death right yeah he knew if he died in the shrine, he was likely to be found there instead yeah. of just somewhere in the desert. Um, and hi- and if he was found, um, his family would immediately get his police pension. Okay. Whereas if he was never found, it would take about 10 years or so. Oh, yeah. For that to kick in. Mm-hmm. So he wrote his wife a note on a, with a piece of charcoal, and then he used his pocket knife to cut his wrist. Oh. And he laid down, and he passed out. And awoke on day four, alive, because he was so dehydrated that his blood <gasps> clotted. Oh, my God. <laughs> and it wouldn't drain. Wow. Oh, no. <laughs> That's real bad. So he said that, he, that death wasn't ready for him. <laughs> I love that as a sentiment. So Prosperity actually took this as a sign. That he, sh- he he can't give up. Yeah. He's got to he keep would. going. And he thought of his wife and his children and it gave him the strength and, and his focus again. And, and, and he was, he, he, there's an article that he wrote and this part, he said that when he, when he focused again and found this new strength, he said, Mara, the athlete was back. Oh, and he left the shrine and walked towards uh, distant mountains he said that he 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 um he was following advice he received before the race. If you're lost, head for head for the clouds that you can see on the horizon at dawn. That's where you will find life. During the day they will disappear, but set your compass and carry on in that direction. Interesting. So that's what he did. I wonder what stopped him from doing that before. Like before he even found the shrine. I don't know. Maybe he did. Yeah, okay. I don't know. But he was walking towards um, a range of mountains. Mm-hmm. 
and he he was doing this for days. God. During the day, he would walk or take shelter in whatever shade he could find. He ate snakes and lizards, squeezing the liquid out of plant roots from dried riverbeds. Mm. During the night, he covered himself in sand to keep warm. And all the while, he was leaving pieces of his gear behind him like a trail of breadcrumbs <laughs> for someone to hopefully find. On the eighth day, he came across a miracle, a small oasis with a, basically a puddle of water. Okay. But his throat and mouth were so swollen. Oh, my. That he couldn't drink. Oh. So he just said that he laid beside it and just took one sip like every 10 minutes. Wow. And after he felt like he had gotten what he needed to get up, he filled his water bottle and continued on. And soon after this, he came across another miracle. Goat droppings. So he followed this trail, and he found human footprints. Oh, boy. And then when he crested a hill, he found a little nomad girl tending a flock of goats. She was part of the nomadic Turig tribe, and they took him in and gave him goat's milk and called the police. Oh, my God. And when the police arrived, they were pretty suspicious of him. Yeah. They didn't know who he was. He was, he was a foreigner. I'm sure he looked insane. Looked insane. But once they, once he was able to explain um, that he was just a runner who got lost, they were, they were happy to get him to a hospital. So after nine days lost in the Sahara Desert, Mario Prosperi was finally rescued. But where had he gone? And how far, of course, had he ended up? <laughs> uh-huh. Had, had he just like... If he just crossed another dune, would he have found his car? Oh my god, can you imagine? Well, no. He had not only wandered out of the race, but he had wandered out of Morocco. <laughs> oh dear. Prosperi had walked 182 miles away. What? A- across the Jebel Beni mountain range and into Algeria. <gasps> oh no. So just as an example, and I got this from a video from Real Life Lore. Oh yeah, that I that I that helped uh, you know get some uh, some of the little finer details. This is the equivalent of running a race in Boston mm-hmm. and ending up in New York City. Okay, so um, I have done the trip from Boston to New York City, and it took six hours on a bus. Mm. So so that's pretty far. Or nine days by foot. Well, maybe a little bit less. Unless yeah. you're staying at a shrine. Right. Depends on weather conditions and traffic, I suppose. Yeah. So when he was at the hospital, Prosperi only weighed 99 pounds. Oh, man. Do you know how tall he was? No. Okay. I didn't see that. But he, but he had lost about 40 pounds. Oh, my. Um. And his liver had almost failed. Yeah, I I would imagine so. And it took him two years to recover <gasps> from the ordeal. Oh, my God. But something about the experience seemed to have changed him. Well, uh, yeah. You, you, which seems obvious, but four years later, Prosperi participated in the Marathon of the Sands again. He says he wanted to finish it. All the sympathy I was feeling has just evaporated. 
Like a puddle in the desert. And he got lost again. No, I'm just kidding. He oh my <laughs> God. That is not okay. <laughs> that is not okay. He did not get lost again, as far as I know. Oh, blessings. But he wanted he said he said, I want to finish this thing that defeated me. I want to finish it. Mm-hmm. But apparently that wasn't enough. He participated five more times and participated in more desert races too, stating that he was drawn back to the desert every year. Uh huh. And of course, his story has been the subject of some skepticism. Yeah. Even from the founder of the ultramarathon itself. Oh. I mean, the idea of someone surviving the Sahara, in the Sahara Desert for 10, almost 10 days mm-hmm. with without really anything is quite unbelievable but his medical records are fact right and the other details of his story were checked so it seems that for a majority of his claims he's the real deal well and it makes sense from the perspective of like the sort of peak health you have to be in to be an olympian yeah and especially because he was an olympian and what you said a pentathlon yep so that makes it a little more believable just because your metabolism is going to be completely different than, just, you know, your average whoever. Sure. I mean, there's other marathons. Does he know there's other marathons? He could like, this isn't the only one. He doesn't have to do this one. Well, as I said, he, he, he said that he's drawn to the desert every year. It's not just about running a marathon in Sheboygan. It's about something pulling him into the desert so whatever happened to him it it it, it, it affected his whole life you can't just go to coachella no okay. maybe burning man oh yeah but i don't think it's going to be the same thing mm. well those are my stories thank you honey you are very welcome <laughs> and thank you for listening and spending some of your day with us. I hope you found that story to be interesting. And if you did, please take a second to rate, review, and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. And check us out on Twitter and Instagram for more content. We are Fantastic HPod on both. Or feel free to shoot us an email at fantastichistorypod at gmail.com. Until next week. Bye. Bye.